Hi there, and welcome to episode number 24 of Nice Work, a podcast of the Super Nice Club. I'm your host, Todd Brilliant, and I'm recording this intro from one of my very favorite cities in the world, Seattle, Washington. Seattle's just, I just love it. I love this town. I really do. If you're into Anthony Bourdain, which you probably are, check out his episode of um, Parts Unknown. I think it's season 10 or season 9 on Seattle, and it will give you Seattle warts and all, because this town has changed a lot in the last 20 years that I've been visiting it, and not always for the better, that's for sure, but it's still just, it's a place where my heart beats stronger, and, and I feel deeper, and I'm more creative, and I just love it here. Anyway. Today's guest. Today's guest is a dear friend uh, and a dear man, Richard Heinberg. Richard Heinberg is the senior fellow at Post Carbon Institute. He is one of the world's great educators and researchers on energy, economy, ecology, and how the three intertwine and impact one another, and really how humans' addiction to energy consumption, notably fossil fuels has changed and impacted our societies and what those addictions are going to continue to do to us in the future and kind of what we can do to overcome them, right? Uh, You're going to hear Richard talk with me about things like shale oil, the shale bubble Ponzi scheme, the difference between renewable and sustainable, the oil booms that bust small town USA, the real disconnect between Silicon Valley and humanity itself, and not in all cases, of course, but the general disconnect there, and the real U.S. economy versus the one you see on television, our hopeful transition to solar and renewable prospects. Um, we're going to talk about how to build the new energy infrastructure, how Tesla and companies like Apple are at all-time highs during a global pandemic, and, and how is that possible and what does that mean? We're going to cover all of that. We're even going to get into violence. Yeah, violence. So, so turn off everything else, tune out the rest of the world, and drop in to nice work with Richard Heinberg. Richard Heinberg. Richard, it's so great to talk to you and to, to see you. I know, listeners, you can't see Richard, but he's dashing and he's got a library <laughs> behind him. One of my favorite people. I've known you for, gosh... Like a decade now, Richard. We've known each other for a decade. Yeah, yeah. We used to work together when you lived in uh, Santa Rosa. We worked mm-hmm. together at the Post Carbon Institute. We did, and now you're on the podcast, and it makes me very happy, this this uh, cycle that's coming around. So let's start at the top. You are the senior fellow at Post Carbon Institute. For those who aren't familiar with the Institute, what does it do? What do you do there? <laughs> well, it's a small nonprofit think tank. And as the name suggests, we uh, work with issues around climate change and, uh, and the energy transition away from fossil fuels. Um, and we've been around since 2003. Uh, I've, been on, I've been associated with the organization since 2003, but I haven't, I've only been on staff since uh, I think the end of 2007 or beginning of 2008. So a little over 10 years. And uh, as a fellow or a senior fellow, it's basically my job to do research and writing. And that's kind of, you know, how I got into this in the first place. I've, I've, I've just been a, a writer and public speaker on environmental issues, um, basically since I started working. <laughs> So at Post Carbon Institute, what are some of the main what's some of the main output that, that is happening at the, at the think tank these days? What are you focusing on? Well, there are a couple of areas that that we've focused on in, in recent years. One has to do with the fracking frenzy, and we have done original research on both natural gas and tight oil in the U.S. on you know, how long is this going to last? How much uh, oil can be produced? Uh, what are the economic implications and so on? So we get uh, proprietary uh, drilling information uh, for all of the oil wells, oil and gas wells in the U.S. And uh, 
And we got have a guy named David Hughes who used to do energy analysis for the government of Canada. And uh, he he does a, an annual report looking at how the the shale bubble is going. And we call it a bubble because the, to us the the data are very clear that this is not a long term play. It's uh, it's very expensive. It requires a lot of drilling. The individual wells deplete uh, very rapidly. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a Ponzi scheme, and it's a it's a Ponzi scheme that has distracted everyone, or a lot of people anyway, from the simple fact that you know fossil fuels are finite and depleting, and we need to get off of them as quickly as possible and make other plans. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been a shiny new thing for the last 10 years where investors have, have fed a lot of money into the, into the fracking uh, boom. But uh, most of that money has been wasted. And we've already seen just in the last uh, few months uh, with lower gasoline and oil prices, the, uh, the output from the shale wells has plummeted. So, you know, we don't think that's going to turn around substantially. If oil prices rise, the drillers may get back to work to a certain extent, but the heyday is over, uh, bankruptcies are going to increase and, and so on. So that's that's one area of our work. You want right. to t- talk about that for a second before we get to the other? Yeah, I mean, there's just so much that we could talk about. If I recall correctly, the, the shale fracking thing is, and not a Folks might not really realize it. Like, it's amazing when when gas prices come down and oil prices come down for us as we're as we're tooting around town. But what you aren't seeing, and jump in, Richard, uh, <laughs> is that when it goes down enough, uh, a lot of companies are going out of business because right. they can't afford to keep drilling these 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 wells, right? Because it has to be a certain price in order to be cost effective. And also, these wells they deplete rather quickly, don't they? Yeah, they they lose like sixty percent of production rate over the first couple of years, and then it it gradually uh, the decline rate gradually uh, tapers off. But if the industry isn't just drilling and drilling and drilling, then production rates go down and down and down, and that's 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 what's happening right now because drilling is down. The number of drilling rigs operating mm-hmm. in the United States is at the lowest level it's been in uh, many years, at least since about 2013 or so. Now, wasn't that supposed to be the opposite of that? Wasn't it, you know, again, correct me, didn't President Obama uh, announce that he was going to kick off the greatest drilling boom in the history of the United States with some projection for some ungodly amount of, of wells across the USA by, the, by 2030 or 2040, correct? Yeah, well, I mean, they they've drilled tens of thousands of wells. You know, North Dakota, Texas, Pennsylvania, these places are pincushions now. You know, right. and uh and of course there's a lot of environmental impact from all mm-hmm. of this drilling. Other environmental organizations have focused on that and rightly so. Wasn't um, that coming from kind of a good place and could could some people argue that that uh this was coming from an administration who was just trying to get us energy independence, so yeah. you know security, right? And that's that's the fastest way to do it, right? Yeah. Well, you know, it turned out that the U.S. has the best resources for this kind of uh, drilling. The fracking frenzy hasn't taken off anywhere else in the world. They tried to do a little bit in Great Britain, and it never took off. There's some in Romania, some in Argentina. But uh, the U.S. is the epicenter of fracking, and and it's largely, uh, well, it's it's the resources, as I said before, but it's also largely the kind of governmental support that the industry got. Um, and some of that governmental support was from the Federal Reserve, which just after the uh, 2008 financial crash, the Fed uh, just you know, through quantitative easing, pumped enormous amounts, trillions of dollars into the the financial industry, you know. And mm-hmm. so there were all, all of these investors looking for the next big thing, looking for something to invest in. And so uh, more bubbles got blown, uh, not just with fracking, uh, even more so in, in the tech industry, uh, Silicon Valley. But 
uh, if that hadn't happened, uh, if if the Fed hadn't you know dispersed all that money, then uh, we probably wouldn't. And also lower interest rates because most of these companies and they're small companies. We're not just talking about Exxon and and Chevron, but you know uh, a couple of hundred small to medium sized drilling companies. They're they're all heavily in debt. So without the low interest rates that the Federal Reserve engineered after the crash, again, it wouldn't have happened. Now, what about these small communities that these companies have gone into? Because like you said, these are in some ways out in the middle of nowhere. These are really small towns that they're, the impact on these small communities has been pretty devastating, hasn't it, financially? Well, it's it's a boom and bust economy. Uh, mm-hmm. They create these man camps where, <laughs> you know, uh, they attract people from all over the country who, you know, are looking for that salary maybe north of $100,000 a year. But they have to live in conditions where, you know, there's there are no houses for rent. I mean, everything is taken up in these places in South Dakota and and parts of Texas and so on. So, you know, it's like uh, instant trailer parks and, and people paying in, enormous amounts for, for rent and coffee shops are charging more and everything. So the, there's a huge boom in, in the local economy, but then that just goes away when the drilling stops, which is what's happening right now. Which is just a couple of years later, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then these towns are left with overbuilt infrastructures, and everybody's gone. And in a way, it's kind of emblematic of the United States as a whole. You know, I mean, this is what happened to our country, and in some ways, the whole world over the last century with fossil fuels. We we found these sources of energy that were just amazing compared to what we had before. You know, before it was like we were using mules and and windmills and water mills and so on. Whale fat. Yeah, and suddenly (laughs) we've got sources of energy that enable us to run cars and planes and and increase manufacturing and and tractors for agriculture. So, you know, we don't need so many people on the farm. So all those people who used to be on farms now move into cities and creates the uh, middle class. Everything changed as a result of fossil fuels. But it is kind of a, a boomtown effect because as fossil fuels deplete, as we move to other sources of energy, you know, life is going to change pretty dramatically. So what else is, are you working on at FECI right now? So right. fracking, which is going to be every year, David Hughes is going to release his report and every year there's going to be new data and every year the PCI is going to push that forward, right? Yeah. That sounds like kind of a permanent plank. What else What else is going on? Okay, we did a project a couple of years ago called Our Renewable Future, where I worked mm-hmm. with another one of our fellows, David Fridley, who's in the energy analysis team at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. And David is uh, one of the smartest energy He's people smart in, in the country or maybe even in the world. And a wonderful guy, as you say. And so we spent a year looking at the prospects for a transition to renewable energy, solar and wind power, to see, you know, what are the opportunities, what are the roadblocks, what might be the, uh, what what might it look like at the, at the end of the day? If we tried to run the whole world just on solar and wind, what would it look like? What would be a typical day? And so on. And so that was published as a book, Our Renewable Future, which uh, you can find for free on the internet. Uh, just go to ourrenewablefuture.org, and the whole thing is right there. So um, you want me to run you through it real quick? <laughs> of course. 30 seconds. Go. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, of course, we need to move away from fossil fuels, and solar and wind are probably our best options. But they're not going to enable us to continue living the way we're we're living right now. And there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, one is the 20% problem. Uh, solar and wind produce electricity, but we only use 20% of our energy currently in the form of electricity. So the other 80% of the energy that we use, 
we use in the form of liquid fuels like gasoline in our cars mm -hmm. and solid fuels that we sometimes use for industrial purposes and natural gas for home heating, all this stuff. So we're either going to have to electrify an enormous amount of technological infrastructure like 200 million electric cars in the U.S. or something like that, or we're going to have to use solar and wind electricity to produce uh, synthetic fuels, whether, you know, ammonia or uh, some kind of synthetic diesel fuel or, or whatever to use in existing engines and industrial processes and so on. And both of those things are very expensive and are going to take an enormous amount of investment. And if we go the latter way of making fuels, then that's that implies a lot of energy inefficiencies that have to be calculated in. So that's just one challenge. Another big challenge is intermittency. The sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow. So you have to deal with that, and there are three ways of dealing with it. One is with energy storage, like batteries, and of course everybody's talking about batteries these days, and the Tesla power wall and improvements in efficiency and costs going down. But no matter how you figure it, energy storage by batteries is going to be expensive. And it only works short term. So there are two kinds of intermittency. One is short term, like over a period of 24, 48 hours, if the sun isn't shining or, mm -hmm. you know, nighttime, it's not shining, obviously. So you have batteries for the nighttime. But what about se seasonal scale intermittency. So, you know, summer and winter may look very different in terms of energy production. So how do you store energy for that? And the best way probably is going to be, again, making synthetic fuels and storing those. But again, you run into the inefficiency problem and also the expense of building an infrastructure that could be ultimately roughly the same size as our current fossil fuel infrastructure. So again, there's enormous amount of investment required. So when we looked at all of this package together and in, in much more detail than I'm going into right now, our conclusion was, realistically, the only way to make this energy transition is to start by reducing our energy consumption pretty dramatically, especially in the highly industrialized countries like the U.S. So we should be aiming for maybe 25% or even less of the energy usage that we're currently doing. And uh, if we do that, then it's the energy transition is much more affordable and it won't entail the spike in emissions that would otherwise be entailed. Because if we don't reduce our energy usage and try to produce as much wind and solar power as you know, our current energy usage would entail, then what happens? Well, we have to build this enormous new infrastructure, not just solar panels and wind turbines, but electric cars and trucks and, and a whole infrastructure for making and storing and transferring synthetic fuels, all of this. And building it takes energy. And most of that energy is going to come, at least in the, in the initial stages, from fossil fuels. So this is a building program larger in scale than anything that we've done in the U.S. ever. It's huge. So it entails a correspondingly huge energy spurt of consumption, and that means more carbon emissions. And of course, one right. of the purposes of the whole thing is to reduce carbon emissions. So you're defeating your purpose unless you reduce energy usage. And for listeners who have solar panels on their own homes, they, you know, you kind of get this because putting on a PV system is kind of expensive. There's a lot of investment up front. After that, you get free electricity, but the upfront investment is pretty big. So you reduce that upfront investment by reducing your energy usage first before you invest. That's what most people do. It's the sensible thing to do. And that's what we need to do as a society as we get off of fossil fuels. And that's something that you talk about, which we're going to come to a little bit later. You talk about that reduce first as one of the main lessons that you and your wife learned in trying to build your own right. 
renewable, responsible home. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But before I do, something you said that's important, I think, to get across as a... And guys, there's so many basic primers. <laughs> there's so many little energy primers and, and things to know to really get a lot out of these conversations. That it's This was a challenge when, when I was working with Richard at Post Carbon Institute. It's like, you know, not just a lot of jargon, but a lot of basic concepts. And without knowing those it makes the rest of the conversation very difficult, right? Yeah. So we, we, we put together, we did a lot of different efforts. Remember the, um, the art PEAK? What did PEAK stand for? P-E-A-K. Something uh, education <laughs> art kit. Yeah, I, I should remember these things, but it was amazing. Yeah, because you, know, you, you, you were the mastermind behind that project. Oh, I, you know, I worked on it with Steve Lambert. Leslie, Leslie was a big part of it. Cher, we all were. But anyway, yeah. the whole point of it was to try to get some of these, these really basic concepts, like the, the long tail of energy. You alluded to, guys, it takes a lot of energy to build this infrastructure. But not just a lot of energy, not just a lot of oil, but you have to mine the earth to uh, get the metals, to build the components. But to mine the earth, you have to build the mining equipment, which requires right. trucks and tires, and those take oil. Like, it just goes on and on. It's, it's massive. But you also were talking about uh, efficiency, the higher efficiency gains that are leading to lower costs of energy, which reminded me of one concept that I think I would love for you to spell out, which is Javon's paradox. Oh, yeah. Because um, a lot of people, when they hear energy efficiency, they think, man, it's, I don't know what these guys are worrying about, man. We're going to have things that are like 5,000 times more energy efficient. We'll have enough energy for everybody. <laughs> but, and I get it. But Javon's paradox addresses that. Do you mind explaining that? Yeah, there, for, there are a couple of things about efficiency, yeah. and Jevons' paradox Jevons, is, is one of apology. them. Yeah, that's okay. Mr. Jevon, uh, I apologize. And the, the, the paradox is that as you increase efficiency, that lowers the cost, which tends to invite increased usage. So that's that's part of what happened with the uh, the fossil fuel revolution, you know. Coal mining started out very inefficient, and Jevons lived in, in England in the middle of the 19th century. He was an economist. He was one of the first, most important economists in, in Britain. And he noticed that as coal mining became more efficient, it produced coal more cheaply. But rather than everyone just getting cheaper coal and being done with it, that encouraged more coal consumption and, and therefore more coal mining. And on a, on a huge scale, you know, the, the, every efficiency gain led to more usage. So, you know, you translate that to the world at present. And, you know, everybody's looking for more efficient ways of mining, more efficient ways of uh, producing energy, more efficient ways of manufacturing. And it all sounds very good, but the but what that ends up doing is encouraging more consumption and therefore more resource depletion, more waste, more more pollution, and so on. So it's a it, it if we want a world with that's more sustainable with less waste and pollution and less resource depletion, then we've got to aim for that. We can't just assume that efficiency is going to get us there. Is that something that what are the, the best ways to sort of address Jevon, Jevon's paradox? Are there ideas floated that would legally mandate consumption reductions? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, we, we haven't done this so much in the modern world, but in traditional societies, cooperative resource management was something that, you know, everybody implicitly understood. If you didn't cooperatively manage resources, like, you know, if you had a field where you were grazing sheep and all of the, all of the sheep herders, shepherds who were using that field just, you know, introduced as many sheep as they possibly could, they'd eat all the grass and all the sheep would starve. Mm -hmm. So there was a, everybody had to implicitly uh, agree to limit their usage of that resource. We could do the same thing in the world today by limiting fossil fuel extraction and usage. And I actually wrote a book along these lines uh, several years ago called The Oil Depletion Protocol, where I you know, suggested a, a, a global agreement that 
could limit the amount of petroleum we're taking out of the ground and thereby also you know, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, reduce problem of oil depletion for future generations and so on. Unfortunately, that plan was never adopted, but it, <laughs> but it you was, tried. Yeah, it was endorsed by by a few city councils and you know so on. But yeah. Well, yesterday was Buckminster Fuller's birthday. Oh yeah. Did you know that? Did you did you did you light a candle? I, for I him? did hear that. Or out yeah. a beer? Yeah. So yesterday was Bucky Fuller's birthday, which got me uh, into some some conversations last night about sort of you know what would Bucky do. Hmm. Without exaggeration, you know, one of the most significant minds and thinkers of the last several centuries. And I wonder, Richard, what do you think, what do you think Bucky would, how would he address that? How would he address, he just seemed to be so hopeful of, at times, I mean, he was, had a really difficult life, but of this idea that human nature and common sense would prevail. Yeah, yeah, he had, Bucky had a, had a very optimistic view of, of human nature and, and also of efficiency. I don't. I don't think he thought very much about the Jevons paradox. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, he had a brilliant mind and his Dymaxion car. You know, in the 1920s, that looked almost still looks futuristic. Uh, the, yes. the geodesic dome. All of these were, you know, great, brilliant ideas. And he was trying to teach. He had a world game. Um, where yeah. he would try to teach young kids, like let's start, let's start them young, right? Mm-hmm. How to see the interconnected nature of some of these different, what, well, what are now crises, what were then concerns, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, across continents and across nations, and this, you know, this cooperativeness that really hasn't happened to date. Yes. So how how do we achieve what you? Okay, I'm gonna just transition to this real quick. Are you still on the advisory board of the Climate Mobilization? Uh, yes, I am. Okay, so this is a great advocacy group calling for a national economic mobilization against climate change, uh, like Lester Brown, Earth Policy Institute, uh, used to call for this this mass mobilization akin to what the United States did during World War II. That is, turning over all superfluous resources to uh, the wartime effort with the goal of 100% clean energy and net zero greenhouse gas emissions by the year 2025. <laughs> it's 2020 now. Yeah. I'm thinking we might not make it to 100% clean energy and net zero. How close will we come? Um, well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's the kind of goal we need to aim for. Realistically, it ain't going to happen. And the, uh, the most progress we're likely to make and the easiest progress we can make on emissions reduction will come from energy re- uh, usage reduction. Mm-hmm. And we saw, we saw this just this year with the coronavirus. You know, it, it caused, we're in an economic depression right now. And I, I'm not saying we need a deeper economic depression. But at the same time, you know, global carbon emissions declined the most they have ever declined as a result of the lockdowns that were instituted for the the pandemic. So that tells us something. It tells us that we got to change how we're living. What happened with the the aviation industry? It basically went away for a while, and it's still down like 75%, at least in the United States. And we're still here. You know, we actually can live without an aviation industry. And mm-hmm. we're going to have to because it's, it's going to be very difficult and expensive. And it's going to take a long time to uh, design and build airplanes that run on something other than uh, kerosene, which is what they currently burn. We're going to have to do that. And uh, we will probably be able to make some kinds of replacement aircraft that will, you know, be able to carry the mail and carry people who are injured to hospitals and do emergency things like that, things that we really need to do. But, you know, carrying millions of people a day to company meetings that they could have 
do over the internet just as easily. We don't need that. And we've proven it to ourselves over the last few months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as long as we can carry the wounded and warheads. <laughs> yeah, right. I think we're all right. <laughs> so Richard, I've got to ask you, what drove you originally into your passion for what is to me kind of the super nicest work of trying to save the best of what's left of our beautiful planet? What brings a person to dive uh, so deeply into the issues of energy and resource scarcity? Well, you know, I, um, before I got into energy stuff, I had, I had no interest in energy whatsoever. My passion was for understanding the human condition and to basically find out why this one species has taken over the world and why we are, you know, overpowering all the rest of nature and stealing from future generations. I mean, it was clear that I was around for the first Earth Day in 1970. You know, I was, I was 20 years old going to college then. I read Limits to Growth when it first was published in 1972. Uh, I was going through the same thing that a lot of you know, teenagers, teenagers are going through now as they first find out about climate change and they realize that, you know, their future may be kind of bleak. Well, that's how I was thinking back in the early 1970s. So I decided to devote my life to figuring this out. And it took me a while to realize that energy was at the core of it. It, it wasn't until the 1990s that I, I realized that energy is behind everything. You know, we can't do anything without energy. And if you want to understand the modern world, you have to understand fossil fuels and how the world changed as a result of fossil fuels. So it, it took me a while to put all that together. And when I finally did, I started writing um, books on the subject. The first one was The Party's Over, which was uh, uh, published in 2003. And it was a pretty big success. And I started getting um, you know, speaking invitations and... Uh, and so on, and, and I was contacted by these these folks in Canada who had started this new nonprofit called the Post Carbon Institute, and they wanted me to be on the board. And so, the rest is has kind of emerged in a, in a from my perspective, at least, right. a very natural and uh, and happy kind of way. A happy kind of way. See, that's such an interesting thing. I think people who are familiar uh, with Richard's writings. Well, at least the books, because, I mean, not to call you out too hard, Richard, <laughs> but the titles, End of Growth, The Party's Over, Power um, Down, Power Down, Snake Oil, Blackout. I mean, it's like, <laughs> oh, man, this guy's Dr. Doom, you know? But that's not who you are. Yeah. That's not who you are. And, and, and to meet you uh, and Janet and to see the, the joy and the optimism that you have, very well anchored in pragmatism about what's most likely to happen. I think it's a, it might surprise some people when they when they finally get to see you speak because the subject matter is challenging. There's no getting around it. There's no like, hey guys, you know, all we have to do is uh, change the kind of shirts we wear and everything's going to be awesome. You know, we're going to mm -hmm. wear some hemp shirts and, and done, right? Remember all the hemp people that would send us products? Oh, right. PCI, like that hemp is going to... Anyway, different conversation. Save the world. Yeah, it's cool. I like it. Yep. But yeah, they, they didn't get some of the fundamental energy value or the amount of energy actually within hemp oil that it's not really that high, right? It was not the main thing that they were talking about. Well, yeah, they, yeah. Uh, yeah. there are still folks who think, it, you know, it's, of course, it's, it, it does have value as, as a medicine, natural mm -hmm. medicine. It does have value in, in various ways, hemp as a industrial material and, and so Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Hemp oil as a fuel, though, mm, that's... Not so great. Yeah. This is what's also great. Going to your home that you and Janet share, you've transformed that home into, you know, your effort at a prototype for sustainable living. You have chickens, you have some crops, you have solar power, but you would never know this just by walking by your house. You live in a, a very normal suburban home <laughs> in Santa Rosa, California, just a... Uh. Uh, it looks like a, it's a 50s neighborhood, right? 50s, 60s, 70s? Yeah. And so you recently wrote a piece in your Muse letter, and everybody, check out richardheinberg.com. Muse letter is something you should subscribe to. It's not always going to uplift you, 
Uh, it might, you might read it and be a little <laughs> concerned and, and, and go to your neighbors and say, can we have a talk? But it's a great, it's a great, great newsletter that Richard, you've been writing since the, probably the nineties, right? Yeah. Uh, the first issue was in January, 1992. So I'm yeah, at so issue it's, number it's 340 something. Yeah. <laughs> So this piece is called, If My House Were the World, The Renewable Energy Transition Via Chickens and Solar Cookers. It's been 20 years. I love that what you did, it, it, when you started, you know, when you started, you weren't rich, but now. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> now. <laughs> uh, you didn't start with the latest technologies, what I'm trying to say. You didn't get to build with the best materials. You didn't get to do, you know, these fancy lead homes that people can start with now. And you also mm. didn't go the other side. You didn't go way off grid. You didn't build um, like a rammed earth home or do something that, that isn't really easy to replicate. You started with a very normal suburban home in a very normal suburb. Here's my question to you about this. Have, you, have your neighbors learned anything from you over the years? Or are you guys kind of like the weird house? No, our, our neighbors, um, we, we, now there are like six of our neighbors who have chickens. Uh, a lot of okay. our neighbors have have solar power on their roofs. Uh, the rest of the stuff, you know, we really put a lot of time and effort in, into this. And uh, over the last 20 years, we've spent tens of thousands of dollars on various uh, renewable energy and uh, energy efficiency technologies like uh, mini split HVAC system for for the house that was just a couple of years ago. That was pretty expensive. We have a, a solar food dryer that we built from scrap and a solar hot water heater. Uh, the the panels were donated to us, so we've saved money wherever we could. But still, a lot a lot of this stuff is expensive, and that, and that's this is one of the reasons I feel like I can speak more or less authoritatively about. The energy transition. It's because not only have I, you know, collaborated with one of the smartest energy guys in, in the country, uh, who's a you know physicist, trained physicist, and, and works on this stuff um, all day, but also I've kind of you know tried to live it for the last twenty years, mm -hmm. uh, running our house on renewable energy and canning vegetables and keeping chickens and doing compost and growing some of our own food, because these are all things that I think everybody can do and would make a huge difference. And we probably all will need to do things like this as we move away from fossil fuels. We'll, we'll have to grow more of our own food. We'll have to get our stuff more locally. We'll have to shorten supply chains. We'll have to uh, insulate our houses so we use less energy to heat them and um, mm -hmm. Et cetera, et cetera. And I have to say, it's been a, a great learning experience. I wouldn't have, even though we made some mistakes along the way, and there are some things I would have done differently, I, I would not live any other way. Uh, you know, when we were together, there was this thought that if we messaged incorrectly at the Institute, that people would say, uh, you just you just want us to get rid of our our stuff and <laughs> go live in caves. It's not going to happen, you know. This energy reduction and have less, you know. That was kind of what we were worried about because that is that that is what some people would 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 say, right? They'd say, mm -hmm. "Oh, you know, you guys are luddites." But now there's kind of a kind of a shift in the last decade where when you say things like, oh, "I'm living a life where I'm growing some of my own food," we, we you know we're eating in-season, locally, smaller, community-based life, that sounds good now, Yeah. right? That sounds better. That's in vogue to a degree, right? It's Definitely a good in the life. Food world. Yeah, it's a good life. And, and that is something, that's what we would have with, with energy reduction. It's not caves. There aren't a lot of caves anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and it would take a lot of fossil fuels to dig that many caves. Yeah, guys. So it's just not going to happen. Damp. I don't know. Yeah. Not very inviting. Right? So there is a beautiful alternative future that, make no mistake, it would take a lot of work to get to, but it doesn't have to be, when you hear Richard or others talking about, or Jimmy Carter 40 years ago, 50 years ago, talking about buying less, consuming less, using less energy, that's a pretty sexy life. It, it really is. Shifting gears a minute, what do you think of Elon Musk 
and more importantly to our listeners, of Tesla's $1,700 stock price? I mean, do you ever get surprised anymore at the types of like fact-denying financial bubbles? Because, you know, bubble, 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 right? That you see. It's crazy. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. The Dow Jones and the other markets are Mm -hmm. doing fine. How is that possible? How Mm -hmm. are the markets fine? How is Tesla at $1,700 in the midst of global recession and pandemic? Please explain that. Well, uh, (laughs) once again, the Federal Reserve has ridden to the rescue of the investor class, just as it did back in 2008, 2009, Mm -hmm. um, and has pumped trillions of dollars into the the financial system. And so the stock people in the stock market see this as, you know, the Fed has our backs. We can't possibly lose. Uh, So, hey, let's, let's go crazy. And Tesla is... You know, again, everybody's looking for the next big thing. And, you know, it kind of doesn't make sense to invest in Boeing right now or American Airlines. But Tesla, I mean, you know, theoretically, when all of this is done and dusted, everybody's going to want to have an electric car. So and uh, Musk is researching all these, these new technologies, batteries and everything. So, hey, we'll just shovel more money in his direction, even though, as you say, the the. Uh, the nameplate value of this stock is just ridiculously overpriced. Do you think we're going to be able to continue to blow these, these financial bubbles? Is there a limit? Is there a limit to financial growth? There's a limit to everything. (laughs) And (laughs) one of these days we'll, uh, we'll get there. You know, right now I think the, the U S economy is, is running on very thin ice because, uh, uh, you know, we're, we are in a depression in terms of where the real economy is, in terms of people's mm-hmm. incomes and spending. And on top of that real economy, we have this financial bubble uh, based entirely on uh, what the Federal Reserve is willing to backstop. Uh, the two things cannot continue forever in, in this kind of disharmony. So, sooner or later, the real world is going to catch up with the stock market. And I'm, I'm not about to predict exactly when that's going no, to happen. of course not. But the idea is that we are keeping numerous sets of books here. Yeah. You know Douglas Rushkoff, right? You've, uh, you've, you've at least talked with him. Yeah, yeah. I've been on, with, on his yeah. podcast. Yeah. So I'm finally, finally reading one of his books, uh, Team Human. Well, I mean... More honestly, I'm carrying it around the house a lot so that it appears like I'm reading it. Early in the book, he writes, I'm just going to read what he writes, um, and I'm going to ask for you know, your assessment if you agree with it. He writes, we are embedding some very old and disparaging notions about human beings and their place in the natural order into our future technological infrastructure. Hmm. Engineers at our leading tech firms and universities tend to see human beings as the problem and technology as the solution. Right. And then he continues... All along the way, cynical views of humans as a mindless mob, incapable of behaving intelligently and peacefully, and peacefully, are used to justify keeping us apart and denying us roles as autonomous actors in any of these areas of life. Our institutions and technologies aren't designed to extend our human nature, but to mitigate or repress it. That's... Uh, what do you think? Is there a disconnect between Silicon Valley and humanity? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with with what he wrote there. Um, and, you know, we humans are complicated critters. Um, there, we, we do have a dark side. Um, I have to say, especially men, you know, we're responsible for 90% of the homicides and and a lot of the bad ideas and and uh, power plays in not only in the modern world, but also in, in history. So, yeah, there are some downsides to us human beings, but on the other hand, we are capable of just amazing feats of of cooperation Mm -hmm. and compassion, and uh, it goes all the way back to our origins as hunter-gatherers, where we lived uh, in a very egalitarian way, and we, we recognized the limits of the natural world and tried to fit in for our, for our own good, for our own survival. And we forgot a lot of that along the way as 
as a result of our addiction to power. And fossil fuels were the biggest source of power we ever came across. And they made us forget a lot of lessons about humility and about joy and empathy and, and things like that that um, we, we need to relearn. And I think we will as we come down off this, this pedestal we've built for ourselves. Do you think there's any chance that space aliens will save us? <laughs> it would be nice. <laughs> but, you know, I think in, I, I'm, I'm doing some writing right now. I have a, a book, another book in progress. And mm -hmm. one of the chapters starts with this paradox, which is that on one hand, there's the, the Kondrashev uh, civilization types. He, he was a, a Soviet astronomer who figured... Uh, that, you know, it it's our destiny as humans to just get more and more power over our environment. And so once you reach complete planetary power, that's a type one civilization. And then okay. when you can control all the power in your solar system, that's a type two civilization. And then galactic power is type three civilization. That fine, but then there's, there's this, uh, this other problem, the Fermi paradox which is, right. okay, if there are all these civilizations out there in the universe, where is everybody? Why haven't they contacted us? And there are lots of solutions to the Fermi paradox. Uh, if you look it up on Wikipedia, there's like 25 or so. One of them is just that intelligent life is programmed to destroy itself. Wherever intelligence emerges in the universe, it, you know, it overtakes its planetary home and destroys it. I don't like that one so much. I don't like that one either. Yeah, yeah, but there's an, there's another one. one, which is that, you know, true intelligence is expressed in taking care of your home and taking care of your planet and enjoying mm -hmm. finding more and more beautiful ways of enjoying your your environment and your relationship to it. That we're okay, programmed. That one. Yeah, we're programmed for beauty. Beauty is like something that emerges through evolution. And we're, you know, we're fascinated with beauty. We love to create beauty. We love to enjoy beauty. And when, when we get really smart, that's how we end up spending our time. Yes. Okay. So that's the truth. The first, <laughs> the first one is a lie. It's, it's, it's a damnable lie sent by the devil, Richard. I'm going to edit it out of this podcast so it gets no traction. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I do love this idea and it's, it's, it's hard not to whipsaw between real um, skepticism in humanity and absolute love for it, right? Yeah. And they're not, they're not necessarily contradictory feelings. They're all part of the, the whole human experience. But, uh, uh, you know, which, which of us is going to reign supreme at the end of the day? Hmm. I don't know. You know <laughs> I, 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 choose to believe, I choose to believe in the latter because there's just so much beautiful art, beautiful music, beautiful people, like you say, and just in nature. There's, right. there's so much beauty out there, which makes for a great shift into the most important question that I wanted to ask you today that I think will resonate with the most, the most listeners. Which do you covet more and why, a Stradivarius or a Guarneri? <laughs> well... I love the beauty of Stradivari. Stradivari was, mm. uh, was a great violin maker, and, and his instruments are meticulously, beautifully designed and crafted. They're just gorgeous works of art. Um, Guarneri made his instruments a little more... Uh, some of his instruments are very beautifully made, but toward the end of his career, he started making them a little more crudely and quickly. Mm but they still sound amazing, in some cases, even better than Strad's. So, ah, of course, you know, I will never own either one. I've had the great good fortune to play a couple of Strad's and Guarneri del Jesus, um, but I will never own one. <laughs> so it sounds like a tie. Yeah. You'll take either one. If you, if you have one out there that you're looking to donate... Yeah, if anybody um, has a spare Strad lying around, uh, yeah, I, I'd be happy to borrow it. <laughs> okay. Okay, good. Good to know. Good to know. That's... Glad we got that. I was saving the best for last. Saving the best for last on that one. Real quick, listeners, 
wanted to thank all of you because you are the sponsors of the Nice Work Podcast, uh, the Super Nice Club members. You are the the sponsors of the, of the Nice Work Podcast just by just by being out there, just by getting behind this simple idea of making the world a nicer place. And this is what this is what Richard is trying to do. He's mm-hmm. trying to certainly make the world a nicer place, which can mean some really not nice-sounding truths, some things that are kind of scary to hear. When you follow up this podcast by going to richardheinberg.com and diving into what he's doing, postcarbon.org, some of the stuff might, you know, it might counter your preferred worldview, right? It might counter your preferred narrative where, oh, it won't take a lot of work. You know, humans are ingenious. We made it past Y2K, damn it, right? (laughs) So what is the rest of this? So just steal yourself a little bit for that. Some of this is a little bit hard, but the work is coming. The truth, the data, it's all coming from a place not of denying future beauty, not of being anti-technology or, or necessarily anti-growth, but rather of harnessing it in ways that give the greatest, you know, that provide the greatest good mm-hmm. for all living creatures and inert parts of our planet. You know, we, we don't need to destroy mountain ranges simply because they're not alive. So, Richard, you have this idea on, well, it's not your idea, but you talk about growth and you talk about, well, there's that great, that great uh, impossible hamster cartoon, mm, um, right. wh- which sums up this idea that infinite growth is not possible on a finite planet, okay? And yet, our markets require growth. So there's this model of growing and, and having financial markets and human growth at the rate of natural replenishment. What, what, is that, what does that even mean? Is that still something you, you believe in? Yeah, yeah. This comes from um, a piece I did a few years ago defining the word sustainability. I mean, what is sustainable? And th- there are two conditions that I think are really important for people to get. One is... You can't be sustainable if you're constantly extracting non-renewable resources and degrading them and then sending them out as waste and pollution, which is what our our current economy does. That is fundamentally unsustainable. The other condition for sustainability that it's important for everybody to understand is you can't use renewable resources faster than nature regenerates them. So just because it's renewable doesn't necessarily mean it's sustainable. So if we, if we get those two conditions for sustainability and really live by them, we can, we can have a happy future. But if we don't, we're going to be in for some trouble at some point. Adhering to that would obviously take international cooperation and international agreement, something that the United States doesn't really do a great job at to this point. Richard, I'm wondering, if you have a challenge that you can issue to the members of the Super Nice Club, something I they can do, do yes. each day to make the world, their world a little nicer, what do you got? Yeah. Well, you know, when we're out in public these days, we're all wearing our face masks. So there's a big challenge there because a lot of your face is obscured and can't, people can't tell whether you're smiling or frowning. Mm-hmm. So how do we deal with that? One way is to get really good at smiling with your eyes and using your eyebrows. Uh, I, I guess another way would be to paint a, a smile on your face mask. But come up with your own clever way of making sure that people you're interacting with get the good vibes that you're actually sending at them. And one way to do that is to wear a super nice club hat, which you can buy at super nice. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I do have a couple that have smiley faces on them, but maybe I could get a t- I could sharpie my t-shirt that says, you know, I'm smiling, damn it. <laughs> okay, so that's your challenge. Get your face mask. When you're out in public, try to send some good vibes out there because Richard's right. Isn't it weird when we're out there, we're looking at everybody and we're losing a lot of the facial uh, recognition, our emotion expression technology is really hampered yeah, with these masks. Not getting the cues. We need to be physically distant, but not socially distant. Yeah, that's a really good point. Richard, do you have a question for me? Yeah, Todd, what's going to happen when everybody joins the Super Nice Club? It's a great question. Just to be clear, everyone 
is born into the super nice club. Uh, it's just, we already have 8 billion members. It's just a matter of reminding them and reactivating them. But when everybody joins, that's when, you know, it's revealed that this was just a ploy by the Scientologists. Super Nice Club is, is a, an arm of Scientology. And Xenu is, uh, you know, going to be revealed as a truth, not a fiction. And you need to get off Tom Cruise's backs, everybody, and John Travolta's. All right? Will Smith, come back. That would be a beautiful thing to get a globe full of people who daily think about What's something I can do to make this world nicer? Yeah. It's going to be what you were talking about earlier, which is going to be Buckminster Fuller's sort of almost naive and beautiful belief in humanity that we're all dedicated to just having a better life. If everybody gets on board, I think we're going to have, uh, we're going to have a much better shot at uh, continuing to explore our universe as, as a happy species for a long time. Cool. I don't think we'll avoid the energy descent, as you talk about, but I do think that uh, hopefully the roller coaster won't crash. We will glide into a valley of uh, energy providing lilies, and uh, it'll be a beautiful pastoral wonderland. It'll be, you know what? It'll be like, let's get back into another faith, uh, a strange one, but you know, I'm just saying with a, I'm being funny about it. Have you ever seen Watchtower by the Jehovah's Witness? Yes, I have. Yeah. So they have incredible artists. Yeah. And if you look at the back cover of Watchtower or the cover, there's back, usually these... Back to Eden. Yeah, these great scenes where everybody of, of different ethnicities are lounging with the lions and the tigers and, and there's like a happy condor up yeah. in the tree and the dodo's <laughs> back there. Like, the dodo's back, you know, these things. There's Tyrannosaurus Rex. It's fantastic. I've actually wanted to do a, an art series where I gather those original paintings. I, I, I approached the church a couple of times and oh, was rebuffed. Okay. It'll be a lot like uh, the Jehovah's Witness pastoral scenes. That's the answer. Uh, yeah. I, I, um, I want to be there when it happens. I don't know. I think tigers are still going to eat people as apex predators. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they'll eat people nicely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Population control. Great question, Richard. Thanks. Yeah. I told you I always answer these things kind of awkwardly. Uh, <laughs> and thanks for, thanks for talking with us. Everybody, Richard Heinberg is, is just a super, super nice, great human, great friend. And I really encourage you to check out the work that he does, as well as the work that he does integrating with Post Carbon Institute. It's important stuff. It'll be, your world will be a nicer place for, for getting to know Richard. Thank you, Todd. It's been fun talking to you. Fun talking to you as well. And I will see you one of these fine days post-COVID. Yeah. Here, here. So there you have it. A super nice conversation with super nice Richard Heinberg. I hope you found a lot of nice, interesting things in there. I hope you're inspired to go check out richardheinberg.com and postcarbon.org. Not because I want to send you to drive traffic to a website, but because I'm hoping that you want to actually learn more. And these are two great websites for education. Also, didn't mention in the podcast, but resilience.org is a website that you might want to check out on a daily basis. That is something that Richard and Post Carbon Institute and yours truly put together some years ago that have a lot of hopeful messages, a lot of things that we can do to make this transition to a renewable future easier. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for being a member of the Super Nice Club. If you're not a member, check us out on Instagram or Facebook. You can also become a Super Nice Club insider. That's a new thing that we're doing just by texting. Yep, texting 310-421-0393. 310-421-0393. That lets us text you when post-COVID we have in-person real events. We can target you by your by your area where you live. Isn't that great? Yeah. So you won't get a bunch of texts. You'll just get things that are specific to you. Also some giveaways, some contests, things like that. Maybe some words of cheer now and then. But that's the Super Nice Club Insider. Uh, you can find our wonderful gear, hats, shirts, etc. They are incredible conversation starters. As a matter of fact, if they don't help you start conversations, 100% money back guarantee. Yep, I know. Crazy, right? SuperniceClub.com. Beyond that, you guys... COVID is tough. This is now officially a grind. We are months into things. And uh, believe me, I know personally, it's not easy at all. And it can be really depressing. So 
just know that as a member of the club and as a member of the larger community in the world, we have to have each other's backs. And we do. As a member of the Super Nice Club, you have the rest of the members that are here for you. If you need anything at all, reach out, text, phone, email, however you need to do it. We're here for you. All right, stay nice. Just wanna be nice